Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You may open your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. It's near the end. If you go to Revelation and just turn back a few books, you will get to 2 Peter. We'll be in chapter 3 this morning. Last week, we, um, we considered this theme of hope, something that uh, people are finding in short supply in these days, something that people are longing for. We saw that we can find hope as Christians if we look to the past, because in the past we see that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected from the grave. There's great hope in that past event. We also saw that there is hope for us in the present because even as we're going through various trials, we know that God is at work and doing something wonderful for us in the midst of our trials. And we also saw that there is hope in the future, that we can look ahead to the second coming of Jesus when we are going to uh, receive this unfading, imperishable inheritance that is promised to us in the Scriptures. Now, when you heard that, or as you've been reflecting on that, it might have occurred to you to ask this question. Okay, Jesus is coming, but when is that going to happen? I mean, where is this Jesus? And I hear the preacher talk about it, and I see it in the scriptures that Jesus is coming again, but when is that going to happen? I mean, haven't we been waiting a long, long time for Jesus to come again? Is he coming or not? I mean, 20 years is a pretty long time to wait for something, relatively speaking. 200 years is actually a pretty long time to wait for something. How about 2,000 years waiting for something to happen? That's how long we've been waiting for Jesus to come again. The more skeptical and cynical among us might step forward and say, maybe he's not coming at all. What would you say to this? What's your answer to this question? What's taking so long for Jesus to come? It's very interesting that it's Peter who said in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, he's the one who urged us to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in us. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, that's what we are going to be seeing here. We're going to see Peter make a defense for his hope that Jesus actually is coming again. This is... Peter, on the ground, offering up this defense, and what he says is that there is an event coming that is going to be the most astonishing, sensational, cataclysmic event that the world has ever seen, and it is in our future, and it is going to happen, and the implication in this teaching is this for all of us today. Are you ready for that? Are you prepared for that day? Because according to Peter, that day is coming. So we are in 2 Peter. We're going through a sermon series here. It's called Route 66. We're doing one sermon per Bible book for all 66 books of the Bible. Started in Genesis, moving toward Revelation. We've reached 2 Peter. Of course, last week we did 1 Peter. Both letters written by Peter. No surprise there. 
the Bible is sometimes very simple, and here's an example of that. Peter is the author of 2 Peter, this book written probably around 64 to 68 AD, likely very soon after 1 Peter. And the themes we find in this short letter are the presence of false teaching and the coming day of the Lord or the final judgment, which is what we're considering today. Um, maybe you've been surprised to notice how often we've talked about this subject. Uh, the coming, second coming of Christ, final judgment, is talked about very, very frequently in the New Testament, more often than you might know. And so we're considering that topic again after having visited it already in First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, but let's see what Peter has to say to us here in chapter 3. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to reach for a paperback Bible that should be underneath one of the chairs in front of you. This passage is on page 591 of the paperback Bible. We're going to be looking at this passage in some detail, so it's helpful if you have a Bible open in front of you. 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> I'll read the first 13 verses. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is, excuse me, is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Father, would you by your spirit come and open our eyes and our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> a 
So Peter gives us some preliminary details here at the start of chapter three to kind of set up uh, the question that he is going to seek to answer. So he tells us just some basic things here. Verse one, he says that this is the second letter that I'm writing to you. So again, this is second Peter. Uh, He says that he is seeking to remind them of something here at the end of verse one. This is what teachers do. They don't always tell you something new. Very often what they're telling you is what you already know, but you need to be reminded of. And he points his readers' attention to what has already been recorded in Scripture through the prophets, he says, in verse two, the holy prophets, Uh, as well as that which has been proclaimed by the apostles that Jesus has instructed and set forth and given a charge to go forward with specific teaching. So Peter's saying, I'm I'm just reminding you of some things here. But what particularly is it that Peter is seeking to remind his readers about? And that answer is in Verse three, here's what I'm reminding you of. Friends, I've told you before, prophets have said it, the apostles have said it, here it is. Knowing first of all, scoffers are are going to come in the last days with with scoffing. In other words, cynics and skeptics and atheists and unbelievers are going to come in the last days. And by the way, we're in the last days right now. According to the scriptures, the time before Jesus' first and second coming are the last days. And so Peter says, in the last days, these skeptics are going to come, and here is what they're going to say, according to verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? Where is this Jesus? Same question I already posed to you uh, at the start of this sermon. Where is he? There's a promise that he's coming, but I don't see him. Doesn't look like he's any closer to coming than he ever was before. They go on, verse 4. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, fathers, patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Isaac and Jacob, ever since their promises, you know, these men have passed away many, many centuries ago, and ever since that happened, and in fact, ever since the beginning of creation, he says, everything is going on just as it was. Nothing's changed. And you're telling me Jesus is coming again. So this is how Peter sets it up. And now for the rest of this passage, he offers up a defense for this. And so this is my challenge to you today. I mean, how would you defend that? How would you answer that? What would you say? Let's look here and see how Peter makes his defense. Peter's defense. First of all, he defends the coming of Jesus at the end of history by appeal to human history, by appeal to human history. Now, these scoffers, these skeptics, uh, are people that we you know, don't have to look too far to find in our world today, right? These are people who assume that there is no such thing as the miraculous. These are people who deny the existence of the supernatural. These are people who would say that the universe is a closed system that the only thing that exists is what we see before our eyes. These, are, these people are called naturalists. That's the word that's often used for naturalists, uh, for these people. We as Christians, we're supernaturalists, right? We, we believe that there is a spirit world. We believe that there is more in this universe than meets the eye. We're supernaturalists, but you take the word super off, 
And you have naturalists. These are people who deny the existence of God or spirit world. Uh, This naturalistic viewpoint captured by Carl Sagan many years ago when he said the cosmos is all there was, all there is, and all there ever will be. And so the naturalist assumption is that if there is no supernatural, we don't expect that God is ever going to break into the universe because he doesn't exist and there is no spirit power to break in. It's just us and what we see before our eyes, the earth, the universe, existing without change for all eternity. But here's how Peter responds to that. In verse 5, he says to these naturalists, he says, you, you guys forgot something. You've overlooked something. Verse 5, they deliberately overlook. Isn't that interesting, that word deliberately? They intentionally and deliberately overlook. Sometimes we just kind of select the evidence we want to believe in, right? I mean, it's not just skeptics that do that. We all kind of do that. We deliberately overlook inconvenient facts very often. And that's what Peter is pointing out about these scoffers. They, they deliberately overlook something. And that is this, that God has intervened in history. It's happened before. It's already happened once. He has intervened in the event that we know as the flood. Verse 5, he goes on, they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens that existed long ago that the earth was formed out of water. This is a reference to Genesis 1-1 where it said the spirit was hovering above the waters. And we read throughout the rest of Genesis 1 that through the water, God by his word, it says here also, by the word of God, at the end of verse 5, by his word he created all that exists. And then in verse 6, Peter goes on and says that by the means of these, the world that then existed, that had been in existence for a while, was then by that same water that God used to create the world, that water was then used to deluge the world. See that in verse 6. The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So this, of course, is a reference to the story of Noah in Genesis 6 through 8. God looked upon humanity. He saw that the thoughts of the human heart was only evil continually. And so God, in his judgment, sent a flood. And that's what Peter's pointing out here in verses 5 and 6. God did intervene. This, this, to summarize, this is Peter's case. God has intervened once in history on a small scale, so why wouldn't he intervene again at the end of history on a larger scale? It shouldn't be a surprise because God has already acted in this way. That's Peter's case. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but did the flood really happen? I mean, this whole teaching kind of begs that question, right? And it'd be nice if we could run a scientific experiment to prove that the flood happened, but we can't really do that. So we have to rely on what others have said and what others have written. And we know that Jesus thought the flood happened. You can see his description of that in Matthew 24. We know that the writer to the Hebrews thought the flood happened. If you look at Hebrews 11, verse 7. And of course, we know that Peter here believed that the flood happened. as That's what he is describing here as 
a historical event. Um, maybe you know this, but there are many ancient Near Eastern writings that have come out of different cultures and traditions many centuries before the coming of Jesus that talk about a huge, enormous flood. There's a document called the Gilgamesh Epic. It was written about 1800 B.C. that talks about a flood and many of the same details that we read about in the scriptures. And, and there are many others. And many of them have different details. They don't uh, always harmonize in what they say actually happened. What we believe is that the scriptures are giving us the authoritative account of what actually happened and the theological meaning behind it. But that's a strong piece of evidence, I think, as you consider that there were all these different traditions and cultures 2,000 years before Christ or so that talked about a flood. I wonder if the reason so many people talked about it is because it actually happened. And this is historical. And this did occur. A worldwide flood, the scripture tells us the meaning behind it, God's judgment on the wickedness of mankind. It shouldn't surprise us, friends, that, that strange weather events happen, right? I mean, strange things happen all the time. I don't know if you heard about this, but in Beijing, China, on May 21st, at about 3.45 p.m., the skies turned pitch black dark. 3.45. And it was the beginning of a thunderstorm. A storm rolled through. It was a very violent storm, lots of rain and lots of lightning. But you can go on YouTube and you can see these videos. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's just so black and dark. It looks like midnight at 3.45 p.m. over Beijing. Now, one peculiar thing about that event is that at about 3 p.m., the Chinese Communist Party were gathering together to meet. For the first time in quite a while, they hadn't been able to meet because of the coronavirus pandemic there. So you had about 2,000 Communist Party members meeting, and reports were saying that one of the things that they were going to discuss was increased measures to persecute the church. Maybe you've heard that the Communist Party is already talking about rewriting the Bible to be more consistent with communist principles. So they're meeting at 3 o'clock to talk about these things, and at 3.45, the skies turn utterly black. And one resident of Beijing said, I've never seen this in my life, and his description is, it seems to me like it's an alarm from God. Strange things happen in history. Strange weather events, strange political events, things we would never expect. Just since 2000, we've seen Katrina, Hurricane Katrina. We've seen 9-11. We've seen a global pandemic. These are bizarre, strange things. Now, we need to be careful, I think, be slow to suggest that we know exactly what's God, what God is doing in, in these things, that that's true. But don't you think when the flood happened, there were probably a lot of people to say, man, it's just really wet lately. You know, I wonder when this rain's going to stop. You know, it was just to them, it was just a weather event. You know, an unusual weather event. But, you know, were they thinking about it in terms of what God was doing? Well, some were and some weren't. But when we see these kinds of things happen in our world, while we might not be absolutely sure what God is doing, to assume just that he's 
not at work or that this has nothing to do with God's judgment on humanity, to just deliberately remove that from your mind is to think like a naturalist, not a supernaturalist. That's to think like a scoffer, not like a Christian. The scriptures are pretty clear that God's wrath is, is being revealed, Romans 1 says. Ezekiel here says, thus says the Lord, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones and wrath to make a full end. God does this kind of thing in history. And we know from Noah's flood in particular that this was an example of God's judgment in history. Peter says, happen once, it's going to happen again. That's his first defense. Well, Peter goes on. And he makes an appeal to God's character this time. He makes an appeal to God's nature, his attributes, uh, what we know to be true about the way God is. And in particular, what Peter talks about here is how God relates to time. Now, time is a creation of God. Time belongs to God. God transcends time, therefore. He, he is above it. He owns it. He's not limited by time. You and I are limited by time, right? Time is a source of frustration for a lot of us. We feel like time is kind of a box that places limits on us. There seems to never be enough time to get done what we want to do. And then on the other hand, there are deadlines coming a lot quick, quicker than we anticipated. And time becomes a source of frustration. Well, that's not the case for God. God owns time. God uses time for his own purposes to accomplish his will. When the time had fully come, it says in Galatians chapter 4, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law. God does what he wants with time. So his experience with time is different than ours. And so that's where Peter goes now as he's making this defense about where is Jesus after 2,000 years. So verse 8, he explores this. And he says, don't overlook, friends, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So here Peter is quoting Psalm 90, verse 4, to make an illustration here about how it is that God relates to time. Now, I know at my age, and those of you who are close to my age might identify with this, but what I find is that the older I get, the faster time seems to go. I don't know if that's your experience, but, you know, a decade to an eight-year-old child just seems like an eternity. <laughs> a decade, 10 years, wow. Well, when you talk to me about what happened in 2010, I just think that seems like last week to me. 2010, but can you believe that? It was 10 years ago. And the older I get, it just seems like time kind of minimizes. Well, think about what that must be like for God who has existed for all eternity. <laughs> if he's existed for all eternity, then we can begin maybe to understand how this is true, that a thousand years are like one day, and one day is like a thousand years. Uh, Wayne Grudem says this, in God's perspective, any extremely long period of time is as if it just happened. And any very short period of time seems to God to last forever. God sees and knows all events, past, present, and future, 
with equal vividness. So, if this is true, then regarding this delay of Jesus, 2,000 years, well, Peter says, from God's perspective, it really shouldn't be that hard to understand. I mean, you actually have two options in terms of how you want to view this delay in Jesus' coming. One is you can say God is slow. God maybe has forgotten his promises. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's neglected to do what he said he was going to do. But in verse 9, Peter says very clearly, no, that's not it. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. That's not the issue. So that's one option for you. You can think of this whole thing in that way, but another way you can think of it is like this. Why has God been, why has Jesus been so slow to come again? Because God is patient. That's why Peter says that in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. It's patient. This is God's patience shown to us. You know, with any circumstance in your life, no matter what is happening in your life right now, no matter what has disappointed you or challenged you in your life, you always have that option. How are you going to interpret it? How are you going to look at it? You you think of Jesus, it's been 2,000 years. I can look at that and think God is slow and he's forgotten. That's, I mean, that's an option. Or you can say, wow, what a great God. He is so patient. If what rain grew to him here is saying it's true that he's seen all events, past, present, and future with equal vividness. Think of all of the wickedness and rebellion and sin and disgusting things God has before him with equal vividness. He could come and bring destruction upon this earth at any moment, and yet he waits patiently. So, in whatever you're dealing with, How are you interpreting the events of your life right now? I mean, you can put a negative spin on it. This is happening because God hates me. This is happening because God is not good. I mean, that's an option. Or you can look at it and say, God has my best interest in mind. God is holy and no charge can be brought against him. God is refining my faith. God is making me like Jesus. That's another option for you. So which is it going to be? Peter presents these two options, and what Peter says is God is patient. And so in verse 9, he goes on to expand on this idea, God is not patient, excuse me, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so now we see why God is so patient. The reason God is waiting so long is he's giving people time to repent. He's waiting for you to repent. He wants people to turn from their sin and turn to him in faith. Now, we could talk a lot about verse 9. I know that creates a number of questions. I think the basic meaning of this is that God's basic disposition to humanity is one of benevolence and goodness. That God is not sadistic. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's the heart of this passage. We know that people do perish, right? If you look back at the end of verse Um, seven, he talks about the destruction of the ungodly. So verse nine says he doesn't wish that any would perish, but verse seven tells us some do perish. I mean, some do go to hell. They do face the destruction of God. So we don't want to deny that, but I think what verse nine is saying is that God's not taking any 
particular pleasure in that, his basic disposition is that you and I would come to him in faith. And so the application is just very simple here, isn't it? I mean, have you repented? Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned from your unbelief and your idolatry and your lusts and your anger and received Jesus as your Savior? Have you done that? This whole time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, we could describe it as the time of God's patience. You've got time. What a blessing. You've got time, but you don't know how much time you're going to have. You might not be alive this afternoon, friends. It's possible, but God is patient, and he wants you to repent, so do so. So this is what Peter is saying. Um, A thousand years is like one day for God. So, yeah, Jesus hasn't come back for 2,000 years. Not, Not really a big deal for God. Last thing we see is that Peter appeals to final judgment. He appeals to final judgment. So, um, yeah, let me clarify. I just mentioned this a little bit ago. You know, Noah's flood was, was a kind of judgment, a temporary judgment within history. What Peter also talks about here is a final judgment at the end of history that's described by this phrase, the day of the Lord, at the start of verse 10. The day of the Lord. That's, that's the final day. That's future to us. Now, when is that going to happen? That's what a lot of us would love to know, and people have spent a lot of time trying to predict and figure out. Jesus tells us that we can't know, and you shouldn't try to figure it out, so don't bother trying to figure it out, and I'm not going to tell you because I don't know, and nobody knows except the Father. But one thing we do learn here in verse 10 is that Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. That is totally unexpected in a sudden way. Jesus says, at a time you do not expect, just when you're thinking that I don't have to bother with God or think about him because this happened or that happened, bam, that's when it happens. You're not going to know. You're not going to be able to predict it. It's going to be surprising, the scriptures say repeatedly. So Jesus is coming at a time we don't know when. That's, That's when. But second question, what's going to happen when Jesus comes again? And we have a lot of very vivid, intense details about that here in this passage. It's really fascinating, isn't it? I mean, with all the special effects we have uh, in in movies, I'd love to see a really great, talented director try to picture this on film. Of course, it would fall way short of what's being described here. But again, what we're being told here is that the most astonishing, spectacular, and cataclysmic event that the world has ever seen is, is, is going to happen. And, and here's what's going to happen. It's all throughout here from like verse 7 to 12. Verse 7, it says that the earth that now exists is stored up for fire, it says. And in verse 10, we see that when the Lord comes like a thief in the night, then after that, the heavens are going to pass away with a roar. Heavenly bodies, apparently Sun, star, stars, moon, planets burned up, dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 12, um, waiting for the coming day of the Lord because of which the heavens then will be set on fire. They're going to be 
dissolve. The heavenly bodies are going to melt as they burn. I mean, imagine the universe on fire. I mean, what an amazing picture. Now, this passage, I think, is very commonly misunderstood. Because what a lot of, a lot of people will do, a lot of Christians, they'll look at this passage and they'll say, well, okay, if the world is just going to burn up and be dissolved and disappear and be obliterated and totally eliminated, then let's just go home and draw the blinds and stay inside and wait till Jesus comes again. Right? I mean, why bother doing anything on this earth? Why care for creation? Why put forth any effort to make things better in this world if by doing so we're just polishing the brass on a sinking ship, as they say? It's all going down. So what purpose is there in seeking to be involved in any way? Well, let's consider what Peter is really saying here. Is this saying that God is going to annihilate the universe? You know, if you look at the very end of verse 13, you see that Peter says we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. So this new earth is our future. But in these verses I just shared with you, it seems like God is going to burn up the earth. So is God going to destroy, obliterate, annihilate the earth and then like start over and build up a brand new earth? Is he going to start over from scratch? Or does he have something else in mind? And, and, and I think he has something else in mind. There's a lot of disagreement about this. A lot of commentators have different views on this. But let me make my case here. Three things to consider. I don't think what Peter is saying is that God is going to absolutely obliterate the universe. The first thing to consider is the meaning of fire in the scriptures. Very often fire, the presence of fire, brings with it an act of purifying or an act of cleansing. In fact, we already saw that last week, right, with 1 Peter 1.7. So the same author, Peter, used fire this way. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. You remember what we said last week, that the fire of affliction is what burns away the impurities that have attached themselves to your faith. That's the purpose of fire. Fire means purging of evil. That's why it says at the end of verse 13 that the new earth is the place where righteousness dwells. It's because all unrighteousness has been eliminated. So consider, first of all, the image of fire. We don't necessarily have to interpret that as destroying, consuming, or obliterating um, what it is attached to. Now consider another thing, the comparison here to Noah. So Peter, as we've already seen, is saying that the final judgment is going to parallel or be patterned somehow after the judgment that occurred in Noah's day. Well, look at the end of verse 6. It says, the means, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. It perished. Peter's description of the flood in Noah's day is that the earth perished. But we know the earth didn't disappear, right? It's still here. It wasn't obliterated. It wasn't annihilated. It perished in some sense. It was destroyed in some sense, but it didn't disappear. 
And remember, God looked upon humanity. He saw the wickedness in people's hearts was continual, and so the entire intent of the flood was to wash away the wickedness and iniquity of the world. And that's what he did, even though the earth wasn't destroyed. I would say a third thing to consider would be this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Jesus came out of the tomb, friends, he didn't get a brand new body. He didn't get a different body than the one that went in the tomb. The one that went in the tomb is the one that came out of the tomb. And we know that because when he was talking to Thomas, he showed Thomas the nail marks in his hands. The wounds that he bore on the cross for you and for me still existed when he came out of the tomb. So Jesus' body was glorified and transformed and brought out in a glorious resurrection, and that resurrection is the pattern for our resurrection and also, I think, the pattern for this renewal and transformation of the universe that we have to look forward to one day. This is our hope, friends. I mean, as we talked about last week, we see in our world an unending stream of sadness and tragedy and wickedness that breaks our hearts. And the hope of the Christian is that there is going to be a new earth where righteousness dwells. Holiness, righteousness, purity, love forever and ever. And he even says in verse 10, uh, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the heaven. No, excuse me, verse um, 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Hastening the coming. There seems to be the suggestion that how we live and what we do on this earth can bring Jesus back quicker. We can hasten it in the way we give ourselves to him. And that just comes the last thing about this appeal to final judgment. When, like a thief in the night, what will happen? This purging, cleansing of the universe. Why is this going to happen? And we see that also in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's the question that Peter wants you to ask in light of these things. Who are you? What are you like? What kind of person are you? What is Jesus going to find when he comes again in you? Will he find faith? What's he going to find? But in any event, what we look forward to in this dissolving and burning up of the universe is a purging of all evil so that righteousness can dwell forever. And this seems very consistent with what Paul says in Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Not, the, not that the creation itself will be annihilated and obliterated, but that it will be redeemed along with all of God's people on that final and last day. So friends, that's the text. Bottom line, and we can just make it this simple. Covered a lot of material here, but here's the bottom line. Jesus is coming. <laughs> He's coming again. If you're not a Christian, and you know you're not a Christian, you need to repent. You need to take seriously what it says at the end of verse 7, the destruction of the ungodly. People who are not Christians are ungodly. People who are not in Christ go to hell. If you have not repented and trusted Christ, you will go to hell. And you'll suffer the destruction that is mentioned here in verse 7. 
But if you turn to Christ, you, you leave your sin behind and you receive him just simply by opening your hands and taking the gift that he wants to give you, which is his righteousness accomplished in his life and the forgiveness of sins accomplished in his death on the cross, he will gladly receive you, forgive your sins, pardon you, and you can look ahead to this last day without fear and with no hesitation, but with great joy and great expectation. If you are a Christian today, maybe this is a wake-up call. Jesus is coming again. Sometimes it seems like he's not. Sometimes we might adopt the same perspective of these scoffers. When's it going to happen? We get a little loose in our Christian life. I don't know if I'm ever going to be held accountable for my life. Maybe that's what you've been thinking. Been a little hesitant to get back into the word. Prayer life has dried up. That's you. If you're drifting, maybe this is a wake-up call. Return to your Savior. Go back to him that you might be found spotless, blameless, and without blemish in Jesus on the final day. God, we thank you, Lord, that you are a Lord who has spoken to us and revealed your will to us and have even told us some things about the future. And we are grateful for that, Lord. I pray, God, that you would move us to repentance, that we would cling tightly to you, Jesus. And we do pray, as John did in Revelation, Jesus, come quickly. We ask for that in his name. Amen.